we worked our way through all of Deuteronomy 24 and 25, but we skipped some passages on purpose. I saw two big threads winding their way through these passages. I I saw a thread of principles of property, property law, and I saw some principles of justice, um, kind of more uh, law principle. And so let's pick some verses. If you're a visitor here tonight, we don't usually just pick and choose what verses we read and don't read, but we're coming back and picking up the verses we missed last time, picking up the second thread. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, I'm just going to read five laws. These are the five we have to pick up on our second time around, and uh, I'll just read the laws themselves so we don't murky the waters, although maybe skipping is murkying them, I don't know. But first, chapter 24, starting at verse 16, will be our first law. Law number one says this. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Skipping ahead now to verse 17, this is our second law. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. That's the second law. Third law is from chapter 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on and beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. That's our third law. Our fourth law is then from verse 11. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. And then, skipping ahead one more time to our fifth law, there at the close of chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, For an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Amen. All right, let's pray, shall we? We'll need his help. Heavenly Father, you are righteous and good altogether. We love your law. We want to understand your law. We want to apply your law. We want to see your heart in your law. We pray... Lord God, please help us to do all these things. Please help me, Lord. I'd be horrified to find there's any way I've misrepresented, misunderstood, misexplained your law, Lord. We pray, protect our feet, protect my mouth, the words that come out, O Lord. Show me if there is any crooked way in the things that I have to say, Lord. Help steady your servant and and bring a good word, Lord. Help it to land in hearts that have good soil prepared for you, and may it make all the difference. I pray all this in Jesus' name with reverence. We come and tremble before your word, knowing that that is the one to whom you shall look. I pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I had some really great teachers in fifth grade, wonderful teachers. One day, they gave us uh, big sheets of white paper for each student, and they told us, design your own country. And so my friend Dan did what any fifth grader would do. He tried to make his country about as silly as you possibly can. So I don't remember a lot of the specifics. I'm, I'm sure it was called something like Dan Land or something like that. It had infrastructure built up for video games and missile defenses and uh, a cat habitat. He loves cats. And I remember he wrote some laws for his country. I don't remember exactly the laws. I'm sure there are things like Dan is dictator for life and Mondays are illegal and math is illegal, knowing Dan and things like that. And it was a lot of fun thinking about it. I don't know what educational value it served. Uh, we probably learned about maps or something, but uh, it was a lot of fun thinking about what laws would we write if we were in charge. Led me to think, well, what if we really were in charge? What if, like in the case of colonial America, you're starting this new experiment, you have the chance to come up with a law code for an entire country? What I'm getting at here is the simple fact, if you had to come up with a new law code, had to come up with foundations for jurisprudence for a new law, the Bible is the best possible source that you could possibly consult. Its principles are foundational for really anything good that's ever arisen in the law codes of men, either accidentally or on purpose. And so tonight we're back in chapters 24 and 25 again. We're picking up the pieces that we left behind last time. Last time we looked at the principles of property. This time we're looking at, at essential principles of justice, the other thread that winds its way through these chapters. And so what we'll do tonight is we'll just try to get our heads around five laws from this passage. We'll try to work hard to glean what are the essential principles of justice that are showing up in these laws, and then we'll apply them to ourselves, see God's heart in all of that. So let's look at these five laws, shall we? We'll read them again because I know I just read them, but it's good to get them locked into our minds. So first law. The first law comes from Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. It says this. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So this law is getting at that important principle of individual responsibility. Now, if we're coming up with principles of justice for a land, this is a pretty good one to start with. This is the basic idea that you reap what you sow, that if you did the crime, you'll do the time. It's actually a really different principle than Israel's neighbors had. Actually, a lot of my commentaries pointed out in Hammurabi's code, another contemporary law, uh, if a lazy builder did some work that ended up killing a client's son, then the lazy builder's son would be put to death. Not the builder, but his son. Not so in Israel. Ezekiel 18 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That's Ezekiel 18, 20. This is God's principle of individual responsibility. That's why Amaziah was such an amazing king in 2 Kings 14. He followed this law. There were some men that had had killed his father, the previous king, so when he comes after them, he executes the murderers and doesn't kill their sons. Something that's very different than what kings would normally have done at that time period. So, now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, that sounds great. Uh, you die for your sins, but well, hold on a minute. What about, 
No, no, Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5, 9. In, in the Ten Commandments itself, God's law says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. You might think, well, is God breaking his law? Well, there's a couple things you have to remember here. The first is there's a difference between a son being punished for his father's sins and a son being affected by his father's sin. Just because God commanded his people, don't punish a son for his father's sin, doesn't mean that a father's sin never has any consequences. That his father's sins never have any repercussions on their sons. Well, all right, you might say, okay, great, tracking with that, but what about Achan's family? Achan's family died for Achan's sin. Joshua, what about the Canaanite children? They died for their parents' sins. I don't think the Canaanite children were doing all these sins, or weren't they punished for their father's sins? Well, for this, you have to remember a couple more things. You have to remember, well, first, God is the sovereign Lord of life. Uh, no matter what, he maintains the prerogative of life and death. He decides who lives and who dies. The other thing you have to remember is that even if he gives this law to man, he says, don't take the life of a father and a son together. God can do that because he's righteous, because furthermore, who's to say that there's not more going on in these cases than just a father-son reflecting on their children? I'd say there's a lot more going on with Achan, a lot more going on with the Canaanites than just a father's sins. God maintains the right to bring about corporate justice on a society. God maintains the right to bring about corporate justice for lots of reasons, and so I'm sure that's going on in these cases. This is more than just a father's sons, a father's sins going on to their sons. This is a whole people's sin. Well, anyway, from this law, we remember that Yahweh is God. Always remember that. But that he also holds each man personally responsible for their sin. I read this, I think of applying this. I think our society would do very well uh, to grab hold of a law like this. Don't you think? A law of individual responsibility in a day when people don't really like to be held responsible for anything, our society would do well to recover truths like this. I dare say. So that's our first law, the law of individual responsibility. Second law, found in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 24, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So this law is getting at something else that was also different from Israel's neighbors. It's illustrating the principle of impartiality and mercy. Both of those things, impartiality and mercy. So on the one hand, this law is pretty clear that God's people should not be partial. They shouldn't favor certain people. Another way of saying that. So this law shows up everywhere in the Bible. Leviticus 19.15 says it clearest. It says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Leviticus 19. James, New Testament. How about the New Testament? James 2.1 says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice from these scriptures, the door swings in both directions. We're not to be partial in favor of the rich, and we're not to be partial in favor of the poor. It's something our society conveniently forgets in both directions. 
Sometimes law codes seem like, well, the rich get away with everything. Other times it seems like, well, we always side with the victim. And, well, in our case law for today, God knows men are always tempted to forego justice for strangers, for orphans, for widows, uh, because upholding justice for those kinds of people, the, the poor and the friendless, that, that brings no earthly advantage for us. And they're a prime target for oppression. They're a prime target for neglect. But God says you have to give them the same justice. And not only justice, but also mercy. He says, don't take the widow's garment in pledge. If she owes you something, if the widow owes you something, don't take her cloak as collateral. It's likely her only jacket. It's likely her only blanket. Without it, she'll freeze to death. And so, yeah, God's people, he says, God says to his people, show mercy to the downtrodden because he has shown mercy to you when you were downtrodden. That's his stated reason. He says, you do this because you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And in case you're wondering, you're thinking, well, wait, isn't that partiality? It's never partiality to uphold the lives of the weak. It's mercy. It's not partiality. The widow still had to repay what she owed. She just was allowed to keep her cloak to survive until she could pay it. Mercy is the very thing that the king was supposed to always remember to do in Israel. Psalm 72, it's the royal psalm. The psalm about the king, you get this picture of, of the lowercase m Messiah, the king, being this way. Leading up to the uppercase M, Messiah, being this way. Psalm 72, verse 12 says this. It says about the king, He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. And so in our second law, we see principles of impartiality on the one hand, but also mercy, on the other hand, because our God shows zero partiality, but plenty of mercy. Both of those things in our second law. Now let's go to our third law. Our third law is from chapter 25, the first three verses. It says, I'll get it uploaded in your brain again, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then... The guilty man deserves to be beaten. The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So this law, we see principles of protection for the guilty and restorative justice. Restorative justice. So, this case law answers the question, okay, uh, God's people need to punish sin, and, and this isn't a case where it's not a capital punishment. So how do God's people go about punishing the lesser crimes? What are the limits on the punishments? How do you make sure those limits are honored, that they actually happen how they're supposed to? Well, turns out God's law is filled with protections for the guilty. Actually, our, our Constitution has very similar Eighth, Eighth Amendment, right? Uh, because first of all, God's law demanded a trial. That's a protection for the guilty. A trial, a trial where both the accused 
and the accuser are brought face to face. They both had to be there. You read that there, verse 1. Second, the case law is presided over by a judge, ideally a wise judge. That's the ideal in Israel. And the judge was instructed, pronounce punishments in proportion to the crime. More on this in a little bit. That'll be our next principle. And this punishment could only be up to 40 lashes, 40 strikes. So actually, the Jews typically did 39 just to be safe. That's why Paul says that five times he received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, 40 lashes less one. And finally, all the punishment was to be carried out in the presence of a judge. The judge was supposed to watch, make sure there's no leniency on the one hand, make sure they don't just let their buddy off lightly. And on the other hand, make sure there's no harshness, that there's no brutality in the court. So then the question comes up, I think, pretty naturally, why is there all this protection for the guilty? Well, on the one hand, it's just to assure that God's justice is rightly being carried out. God wants a just society. He wants it carried out rightly. And I mean, you definitely appreciate these laws if you were guilty, and you'd appreciate these laws if someone had sinned against you. You want the fullest extent of justice, but no more on either hand. But God also gives another reason in verse 3. He says, and pay attention to this, he says, it's so your brother won't be degraded in your sight. So you see this word degraded, it means, it's, it's a word that means the opposite of glorifying someone, the opposite of honoring someone. It's talking about being lessened or dishonored. So you can picture a man being beaten with a hundred blows, being a shriveled husk of a man left, and everybody seeing he's been totally dishonored, he's been broken, he's a broken man. And God doesn't want that. God's concerned with the guilty party's human dignity. He doesn't want to see his image bearers treated like, like whipped dogs. And whenever it's not a capital offense, God is adamant. He wants to see people restored. Where there's life, there's hope. So that's why, did you notice verse 3 calls him, see what it calls him? It calls him brother. Even in punishment, they're not supposed to forget, this man's their brother. He's to have a future on the other side of the whipping. A bright future, God ordered all of this for the protection and the restoration of the guilty. Pointing to the fact that God's a gracious father. He, he spanks his children, yes, but he also hugs them when it's over because his children need both. They need a father to be both kinds of father. Good and severe in equal measure. And so that's our third law, protection for the guilty and restorative justice. So let's look at our fourth law. Fourth law is there in verse 11, chapter 25. It's a little unexpected. It says, when men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. So this law is all about proportional punishment. It centers around a principle. In Latin, it's called lex talionis. It's, uh, you know it better as eye for an eye justice. You've heard an eye for an eye all over the Old Testament. And I'm sure this law probably sounds strange to you when we read it. I mean, a lady grabs a guy's private parts to help out her husband in a fight and loses her hand for it. And I wonder who was reading this and thought, well, that seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Well, God's actually explaining it's not. He's actually explaining this is the perfectly righteous punishment that he deems for this 
this lady stretched out her hand to do irreparable damage to a man, and so she loses her hand. To really understand God's perspective, I, I think we have to ask ourselves, why does God take this so seriously? Well, there could be lots of reasons. I read all kinds of commentaries on this. For one, an, an act like this would be indecent for a lady and bring dishonor to a man. I think, okay, I, I guess that's so. Wouldn't want to be that man. It'd be very embarrassing, I'm sure. But I think more importantly, such an act could take away a man's potential for childbearing. That's pretty serious, especially when you consider that the man's member bore the mark of the covenant. She's striking at the center of the covenant there, and the fact that God's promises passed down through children. To remove from him all possibility of children, all possibility of his line being continued, all possibility of, of the promised inheritance going through his family was quite a serious thing in God's eyes. And in any case, it seems like this law is just a case of lex talionis, like eye for an eye. Like God's law says back in Leviticus 24, I think the clearest statement of this law, Leviticus 24, 19 says, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it will be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This lady has irrevocably damaged a man's important part, and she can't lose a similar appendage, and so she loses her hand. It's as simple as that. In Israel, God always strove to make his punishments directly proportional to the crime. And he, get this, he actually expected his people to carry it out. Of course he knew, you might think, well, doesn't he know how hard this would be to carry out? Well, of course he knew that. That's why he says at the end of that verse, he says, your eye shall have no pity. He's saying, no, no, really do this. Do exactly what I say. So I'm sure you can imagine that People today don't really like laws like this in Scripture. They say, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, and just wipe it under the rug just with that. But they say it's an overreaction. They say, that's not humane. They say, God didn't really mean it. I read commentary after commentary that says, God didn't really mean it. I don't know why he would say, your eye shall not pity then. But they say, well, he didn't really mean it. But listen, if you ever find yourself leaning this way, don't be proud. That's pride rearing its head. That's the uh, I know better than God sentiment rising up. Be careful whenever you find yourself thinking that you are more merciful or more just than God, because that way lies disaster, total disaster. So that's our fourth law. That's our law of proportional punishment. And that brings us to our fifth law, probably our most hardcore of all of these laws. So we're looking at verse 17 at the end of verse, uh, chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This law is pointing to God's ultimate justice also call it retributive justice. Now, by way of background, we first hear about the evil of the Amalekites in Exodus 17. Exodus 17 reminds us the Amalekites were, as Israel was fleeing from Egypt, the Amalekites were dogging them. They're attacking the weak stragglers of Egypt, or of Israel, as they fled from Egypt. And even though Israel did defeat them, the Amalekites would be a thorn in their side for centuries. So God makes a decree. 
at Exodus 17. He says, Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So poetically, God tells the people, I want you to always remember that I want you to leave no remembrance of these people. Write it down. It's as though he's saying, only remember the Amalekites for the justice they've received. So God is very serious about this. That's why he punishes Saul for not destroying the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 28. That's why David, a man after God's own heart, does destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 30. And then centuries later, God makes sure the deed is done under good King Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4. That's when the Amalekites are finally wiped off the map. So then the question I think we have to answer now is, well, why is God so up in arms about the Amalekites? They seem like they're just earmarked for destruction, unlike a lot of other people groups. Well, I think there are lots of reasons. For one, they attacked the weak. They attacked unprovoked. They attacked often. They were cruel. And they were cowards. They're like the lowest of the low. More importantly, though, going even beyond that, they attacked God's people when they were at their most vulnerable. And so God said, it's personal now. You've made it personal. You do not touch the apple of God's eye and get away with it. You do not attack Christ's bride and go unpunished. The text says they did not fear God as they should have. It's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Uh, So they would have to live in terror of him the rest of their days. This is God's retributive. This is his you-get-what-you-deserve justice. It's his ultimate justice. Because there are vessels of wrath who will only be remembered as demonstrations of his perfect justice. As chilling as that sounds, it's true. He takes names. He takes names forever. And that's our fifth law. So, let's start to wrap this up with a long conclusion. I I think you can see as you look at these laws, I want you to see they're great on two levels. On the one hand, they're just great principles of justice for any country, great principles of jurisprudence, foundational principles, individual responsibility, no partiality, mercy, protection for the guilty, restorative justice for the guilty, proportional punishments for people, retributive justice, people get what they deserve. To the degree that our land has flourished, it's had these principles at its heart. To the degree that any land's flourished, it's had these principles at its heart. But we can go deeper than that. That's good for us to know, good for us to base law codes on these things, good for us to live out these things. We have to go a little deeper. Thing is, it occurred to me, as I was reading this passage, it chilled me to my core to realize this. According to these laws, we're all Amalekites by nature. We should all be subject to God's ultimate justice. Talking about individual responsibility, he has a rap sheet on every person in this room. He says we're all naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4 says, he says, if you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? If he wrote down everything, individual responsibility, we're done for. Talking about impartiality, none of us get a pass according to God's law. Not the rich, not the smart, 
not even the nice. We would all stand condemned under this law, even as really good people. Talking about proportional punishments, what do you think is the most appropriate penalty for a lifetime of rebellion against God? For breaking the created order with our sin. For a lifetime of innumerable transgressions, even against those that have done us the most kindness. We're all of us Amalekites by nature. We're born Amalekites. We deserve to have our names, not written, we deserve to have our names carved into God's book of condemnation. Our names only remembered as objects of wrath, eternal exhibits of God's perfect justice. But remember the other two principles that we saw here tonight. Remember also that God also has mercy and restoration. Mercy and restorative justice. How blessed we are to have a God like this. You need to realize if you're born an Amalekite, God's mercy, it's your only chance. It's all you've got. Because friend, even though you're an Amalekite by nature, God, out of his infinite mercy, sent his son to save you. He sent his son to identify with you as a man so he could take your individual responsibility and your proportional punishment on himself. And you'll say, well, wait a minute. How is that fair that Jesus should take my individual responsibility? How is it fair that he takes my proportional punishment? You say, that's not fair. Well, he could. He absolutely could. He could unite with you. He could be one with you. He could take your your individual responsibility, he could take your proportional punishment, your infinite punishment, because he's God. That's why Jesus is everything. He's just everything. Romans 3 is crystal clear. The only way God could bring about justice against all your sins and let you go free is because of what Jesus did for you on that cross. Jesus took all your punishment so God could be just, And Jesus took all your responsibility so you could go free. He's the only way salvation makes any sense. The only way that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's everything. And so, yes, God is righteous. I hope that you see in this passage, I hope you see clearer than ever tonight, after everything we've looked at, that that God's way is righteous. His law code is righteous. But I hope you also see that Jesus is the only way that you can be righteous. The only way you can be reckoned righteous. So if you're not a Christian, here's what I'll say in my true closing. If you're not a Christian, his mercy is your only hope. You're born an Amalekite. You're born with your name carved in the book of death. But if you're not a Christian, he says, seek Jesus If your name is marked out for destruction, seek Jesus. Seek Jesus and he can transfer your name. He says, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Out of the book of destruction into the book of of the Lamb of God. Into the book of life. He can transfer your name. He would have you do that today. Before the ultimate justice comes. It could come any time. If you are a Christian, well then, then praise him. Praise him by obeying him. Praise him by following his principles of justice, as we've seen. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we're just left, again, after examining your law and your heart written down for us, O Lord, we're left again saying, how just and righteous are you? Everything you say and everything you do, our great God, we thank you for sending your Son as, as the way. Out of all your mercy, out of all your restorative justice, Lord, how you've sent your Son to be our righteousness. A righteousness made known apart from the law, the law that we could never follow, Lord. May Jesus loom more precious in our sight. May we cling closer to him. May we, may we obey out of love for him. May, may you do these good things in our hearts, in the hearts of our children too, O oh Lord. May you restore our nation to this kind of principle, these kinds of principles, O oh Lord, but ultimately unto you, a nation whose heart is sold out for you. We do pray for revival according to your word. We pray all these things, knowing that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we think or ask. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.